This week on the Backtable Podcast. And the way that I think about it is, you know, data is armamentarium. When you go into tumor board and you're making a case for your treatment, you have to have armamentarium that you could present. And you say, well, why, you know, why do you think this patient should be treated with radiomobilization or ablation? And you have to base it on literature. If you just say, well, you know, it's what I think would benefit the patient, that, that may work, but it's not as effective as presenting data. And that's, you know, that's what I try to stress to all my trainees. A lot, I, I found that a lot of people just don't know where to start. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Backtable Podcast. If you are a new listener, welcome. For all of our regular listeners, welcome back and thank you for listening. Backtable is a podcast committed to all things IR and endovascular. I'm Chris Beck and I'll be your host today. If you haven't heard from an earlier podcast, I'm a private practice interventional radiologist. I'm based out of New Orleans. Um, Today, we have a great episode lined up. But before we get to that, I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Trisalis. Trisalis Life Sciences is dedicated to improving patient outcomes in HCC and other highly intractable solid tumors. Trisalis infusion systems have the potential to deliver diagnostic, therapeutic agents, and immunostimulants directly into the tumor vasculature, powered by its proprietary pressure-enabled drug delivery approach with smart valve technology to improve the distribution and penetration of therapy in solid tumors. All right. Our topic today is HCC, uh, specifically uh, bridge to transplant. If you guys did not catch our earlier episode on this topic, uh, please go and check it out in the library. It was with um, transplant surgeon Dr. Jen Baruman and uh, interventional radiologist Dr. Isabel Newton. We kind of tackled a paper that came out of the Annals of Surgery in April of this year. Today, I'm excited to introduce our guest today. We have Dr. Alex Kim. Dr. Alex Kim is an interventional radiologist, one of my formal mentors at Georgetown. Alex, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for the invite, Chris. Yeah. Um, so if you could, will you take uh, a second and just give us a, a brief introduction um, to you, your training, and uh, kind of what your clinical practice looks like right now? Sure. Um, so uh, just like Chris said, I'm an interventional radiologist at Georgetown. I'm the section chief there right now. My uh, current practice uh, is mostly in interventional oncology. So I do, you know, all sorts of uh, IO therapies, uh, tastes, Y90, ablation, and you know, I, I do, I do all of the other things as well. But uh, that's the bulk of my practice. That's uh, also my research interest as well. Okay, awesome. All right, so getting into the topic, HCC and bridge to transplant or or downstage to transplant. You know, we have listeners from all all walks, so we have. Uh, med students, we have residents and, you know, people who have been out in practice, but can you just kind of talk about like what, what bridge to transplant or downstage transplant means for some of the uninitiated? Yeah. So, you know, bridging therapy or downstaging treatments or local regional therapies that we deliver for patients with primary liver cancer. So hepatocellular carcinoma specifically who are eligible for liver transplantation. So the standard measure is something called the Milan criteria. This is based on a study published way back 
Uh, it's a small number of patients, but it was actually published in the New England Journal where they found that if uh, for people who have um, limited disease in the liver, so a single lesion less than five centimeters or three lesions less than three, the patients had a long-term survival post-transplant that was similar to patients who didn't have liver cancer. Uh, so pre, you know, prior to that, you know, it was thought that, well, you know, you're taking a risk by giving a new liver to patients with liver cancer because after liver transplantation, obviously, you have to put these patients on immunosuppressants. And, you know, how is suppressing the immune system after a liver transplant going to affect uh, tumor development in the new liver? Um, so this study, even though it was a small study, was kind of groundbreaking and really changed the paradigm for liver transplantation. Now, so that's that's people who are within the you know UNOS transplant criteria. Downstaging criteria, there are different terms that uh, you could use. Most people use the UCSF criteria, uh, where it allows for larger size or a higher amount of total tumor volume. If you could downstage it within the uh, Milan criteria, those patients are eligible to be transplanted. You know, that's the, that's the definition of transplant criteria and downstaging criteria. Now, there are different therapies that you could do for this. And obviously, interventional radiologists play a large role. So, you know, we deliver chemobilization or radiomobilization or uh, percutaneous ablation uh, to treat those patients. And the whole concept of bridging therapy means that you know, you're trying to keep the disease under within this criteria until they are you know, able to get their new liver. So we'll, we'll get into some of like the specifics of like the different local regional therapies that are out there. But one of the things I wanted to ask you, whenever you're seeing patients in clinic, do you think differently or is your approach different to patients that you see with HCC that are bridged to transplant versus patients that are downstage to transplant? So I'm pretty aggressive with both. So in my mind, there are people who can potentially be a transplant candidate and people who have no chance of being a transplant candidate. So for people who are either bridging or, or downstaging candidates, you know, I do everything that I can. I throw everything at them to try to get them within criteria, try to kill off as much tumor as possible. For people beyond that stage, people who have multifocal disease where I know that they're not going to be downstageable, you know, it's a balance between trying to control their tumor, but also preserve their liver function. Because remember, the, the important thing about uh, HCC is that patient's mortality is no, not only dependent uh, on their tumor, but it's also based on their liver function. So, you know, you have to kind of balance both in order to uh, extend patients' lives. And, and that's actually one of the things I'm glad you highlighted it so early is, is that I wanted to uh, key in on for some of our younger listeners is that you know, the whole balance between HCC is preserving liver function, which can ultimately kill patients who are developing HCC because of their liver failure versus is the hepatocellular carcinoma going to overgrow and take over the liver and then kill you. Excellent. So can you talk a little bit about referral patterns uh, in terms of your practice? Like how, how do patients get sent to interventional radiology or specifically to you? Do, does everyone feed in through like a, 
um, uh, tumor board? Is it mostly referrals from hepatology and uh, hepatobiliary surgery? Yeah, so you know, I'm in I'm in a big transplant center, so it's um, it's very different than what you might see in private practice or even an academic center that's not a liver transplant center. So in a lot of ways, you know, we have it pretty easy. We have a uh, system where the hepatologists or the transplant surgeons generally get uh, referrals from community. They come in, they're discussed at a uh, multidisciplinary uh, conference that we attend and are active in. And if patients are early stage or bridging or a downstaging uh, candidate, then they're referred to us for local regional therapy for that purpose. Okay. So you, you've been in practice, uh, how many years, Alex? Uh, eight. eight, years. eight. Yeah. So we were on with a transplant surgeon who mentioned that in 2017, uh, they instituted a mandatory six month wait time for patients with HCC before transplant. And then, and also that this also speaks to the current COVID-19 epidemic in terms of, have you seen like a change in your referral patterns? Like either like with that six month wait period being instituted for, uh, before people can get transplant or since COVID-19 in terms of, patients can't go on for, or, or there's limited resources to do resections or take patients to transplant. Have you seen any change in how patients are getting sent to you or the, the volume? So the, the six month waiting period really hasn't changed much uh, in terms of our workflow for us. You know, everyone who um, I think the wait, wait time at Georgetown is about a year. So anyone who presented that was eligible for liver transplantation or potential downstaging, they were referred to us from the start. So regardless of the six-month waiting period, that really hasn't changed. COVID-19 has been, has been interesting. I, I think, uh, you know, one of the, and not, not necessarily for HCC, but in other tumor types, generally the, the referral pattern from the oncologist for metastatic disease, colorectal cancer, uh, breast cancers, you know, what, what have you. A lot of the patients at, at Georgetown were being offered clinical trials at various stages of their disease. And I think because of the COVID-19 crisis, a lot of the research has uh, either come to a complete stop or has slowed down significantly. And uh, patients who with, you know, metastatic disease who may have been offered a clinical trial because of the pandemic, they're, you know, are, may, seem like they're more likely to be referred to IR to maybe bridge them until this pandemic is dying down and once the clinical trials can rev up again. So I think I, we've actually seen anecdotally an increase in the number of referrals for metastatic disease, but it really hasn't changed for HCC. Going back to uh, local regional therapies for uh, the patients in the bridge to transplant, can you talk about why it's important? Like you said, like you you approach these patients very aggressively. Can you can you kind of describe like the importance of of trying to get a complete response or or partial response to local regional therapy with these patients? Yeah, so I think you know my my practice has really changed, um, and it's uh, I like to think it's based on kind of the literature that's coming out. So when I first started, you know, we were uh, chemo embolization, primarily, you know, type of a, a shop. So I was trained 
for patients who are undergoing bridging or intermediate stage patients, you know, chemoembolization was kind of the standard of care. And that's what we did. And we did that. And one of my frustrations early on, earlier on in my practice was the, the amount of patients who had recurrent disease after chemoembolization. Uh, you know, the, the number of patients who achieved complete response after initial treatment was pretty low. You know, you may get the two centimeter, three centimeter lesion where you can treat with a single vessel feeder that you could treat them selectively. Those patients, you might get a complete response, but the majority of patients didn't have a complete response after initial treatment. And that was, you know, really frustrating to me that, uh, you know, because we would talk about these patients in multidisciplinary conference and it was just kind of like, they're presenting your failure in front of all your peers and your colleagues and other departments. And I, I really hated that. After, after a little while, you know, I started to uh, switch my practice pattern to using some of the pressure-driven catheters. And, you know, anecdotally, I found that these patients responded much better to uh, chemobilization if I did, you know, use pressure-driven catheters. And then I started doing more ablation for these patients. And again, I found that these patients, um, you know, responded better when I performed ablation. Um, so now I uh, have a, a kind of an unusual way of, of treating these patients is that I'll do a, a single day, same session. I call it an angioblation where I basically perform an angiogram and use uh, combium CT guidance to perform an ablation at that time. And depending on the size of the lesion, the location, other factors, I may or may not perform a chemoembolization at the same time. So I've steadily become more aggressive in my treatment of these patients. And again, anecdotally, I think I've seen better responses, better, uh, uh, better complete, at least imaging responses. And papers like, uh, you know, the, the uh, multicenter HCC transplant consortium, where they found that patients who achieve complete pathologic response seem to live longer and be um, live longer without disease after their liver transplant, I think is a really exciting concept for interventional radiologists. You know, I think before papers like this, the term bridging therapy you know, suggest that we are just keeping these patients' tumors under control until they get a liver transplant. Now, you know, it may be that our treatment, uh, our ability to achieve complete response, complete pathologic response may help patients live longer even after they receive a transplant. So I think, you know, that concept is very exciting for, for me and other uh, interventional radiologists. And, and that's, that's exactly what I wanted you to highlight, the fact that, like, complete pathologic response now seems to be... I mean, I, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, were, it, did it seem like things were leaning in that direction even before the, the HCC consortium paper? But now, like, complete pathologic response seems to confer some survival benefit post-transplant that, you know, to, to just treat a tumor and have, like, a little bit of residual-enhancing tumor, like, that, that's really not the goal. I mean, you're really looking for complete pathologic response, and, and now it has a lot of, uh, there's a lot hanging on it now. You know, there's some caveats to that, right? There's, this is a retrospective evaluation. It's a larger study, but doing a, you know, doing a post 
transplant path studies are, are very difficult. But even before this paper came out, there were some single center studies that suggested that complete pathologic response uh, may lead to uh, improved patient outcomes after liver transplantation. There are other papers uh, that suggested that if you have complete imaging response after a single treatment with chemobilization, patients did better than patients who had multiple treatments. So, you know, I think everything, there's no, you know, there's no RCT. Now with the COVID-19, uh, you know, therapies, everybody kind of understands the different levels of evidence that's out there, right? And so the level of evidence for this, you know, we don't have a RCT that shows this, nor will we probably ever have RCT demonstrating this. But I think there are a lot of retrospective studies that are pointing in the same direction of the importance of getting that complete response after, you know, one or two therapies. Then you could, you know, think about why is that the case? You know, is it the way that you treat patients is, you know, is this technique and your ability to get complete pathologic response matter? Is that the most important thing? Or is this just a surrogate to unmask tumor biology? Uh, and, you know, we don't really know the answer to that. I would, I would suspect that it's probably a combination of both. Uh, but tumor biology matters, but I think your, your technique and your aggressiveness and your ability to really kill these tumors also matters. Actually, so when I read the HCC consortium paper, one of the things that, I mean, they, they talk a lot about local regional therapy and, and its response as like kind of a marker of tumor biology. And, and I guess as an interventional radiologist, one of the things I read, I just couldn't help but internalize. And I thought, you know, are these things secondary to tumor biology or is this just things that we're doing with, inad- I don't want to say inadequate treatments, but, you know, are, are you leaving a little left on, like, are you not throwing the kitchen sink at some of these tumors or, or, or are you not doing a, you know, the perfect interventional job? And so, and I think good safe answer to say it's probably a combination of technique, tumor biology, and a couple of other things. Right. And you're, you're never going to change tumor biology to start off with, but, you know, you, you can change your technique and continue to, you know, change how you approach these patients to try to get the complete response uh, as soon as, as early as possible in treatment uh, course. You know, one of the things that's interesting to me is when I, you know, when I uh, go around the, the country talking to people, a lot of the interventional radiologists, I think, kind of overestimate their ability to get complete responses. I remember this guy up in Boston that I was talking to, that told me that his rate of complete response was 79%. And I'm not sure exactly how he derived at that number, but you could clearly see from this, this paper, their rate of complete pathologic response was 23%. Now, you could argue that there's going to be some differences between imaging response and pathologic response, but... You know, no one's no one's getting an eighty percent complete response rate, uh, and I think I think it's foolish, and you're you're actually hurting your patients if you overestimate your abilities uh, to that degree. The other thing I want to talk about in terms of tumor biology is um, there are some papers that have come out in uh, in the past couple of years that have looked at the the way that your tumor biology changes if you achieve, if you get a complete response. So there's a a nice paper, I think it was in Nature Communications that came out uh, within the past year where they looked at 
patients who um, got a subtotal ablation, meaning you know, a precutaneous ablation was performed and they did not achieve a complete pathologic response. The immune reaction uh, to the tumor and the patient actually changed because of the incomplete pathologic response and uh, it made the patient's immune system less likely to be responsive to checkpoint uh, inhibition. So, I, you know, I, I think when you talk about tumor biology, you got to understand that, yes, some of this is pre-existing that we don't really have a hand in uh, controlling, but there may be some patients, uh, some tumors where we're actually making the tumor more aggressive by not getting that complete response after initial treatment. And, you know, it's not really limited to that one paper. There are a number of other papers that are, that have suggested that. So, you know, that really uh, supports uh, the theory or supports being, you know, being as aggressive as possible initially and trying to get, achieve that complete response after initial therapy. Okay. So you, you touched upon it, a little bit earlier, but now we can really kind of dig into the technical component. Can you talk about like when you have a bridge to transplant patient and you know, we can, if you want, we, if it makes it easier, we can create like, you know, the ideal patient scenario, but can you take us a little bit through your thought process in how you decide which local regional therapy is going to be the right therapy for the patient that you're seeing? Yeah. So the majority of my patients, I, you know, I try to see if they're ablatable. Uh, you know, I think the concept of sticking a needle into tumor and burning everything, including getting a centimeter margin, if you're able to achieve that, you know, there's no other therapy in our toolbox in my mind, that's uh, superior to that. Again, you know, I kind of talked about the way that I perform ablations, which is a little different than how most people do it. Like, you know, actually do an angiogram at the same time, isolate the lesion using comb beam CT, and then using uh, guidance software, uh, advance the needle and burn the tumor. And the reason that I switched to that is because one of the limitations that I uh, noticed doing percutaneous ablation uh, using CT guidance or ultrasound guidance is visualization. You, know, mm-hmm. you guys have all done ablations, a uh, lesion that looks, you know, enhancing bright, you know, great on an MR doesn't necessarily look like that on a non-con CT. And even if you use contrast, you know, it comes in, washes out. By the time you stick in your needle, it's gone and it's hard to localize a tumor. And, you know, you could try to use Lepidol or uh, Lumi beads to try to localize the tumor, but that doesn't always work very well. And what I found was that doing uh, an angiogram at the same time using Comium CT, you're able to visualize the lesion in almost 100% of the patients. You're able to, you know, make your needle advancement very easy because of the, of the tracking software. And the other thing, you know, I'm not sure if it's in every system, but at least uh, the unit that we have, you're able to draw a, uh, a burn zone. So you're able to program in your ablation uh, parameters and it'll show you what the burn zone is based on manufacturer guidelines. So you can make sure that using your Combium CT and that software, you're getting not only the tumor, but a centimeter margin around that. And that's what, that's what I try to do for most of my patients. 
you know, if a patient's lesion is close to a vessel and worried about heat sink, those are the patients that I'll treat concurrently with chemo mobilization at the same session. And, uh, you know, Y90 is very widely used in other centers. Uh, you know, obviously there's great data from, from Northwestern showing uh, very high pathologic complete response rates. We don't generally bridge our patients with Y90, and that's uh, based on feedback from our transplant surgeons. You know, we tried that uh, for a few patients, and they ran into difficulty intraoperatively. So we were asked not to do that if possible. The patients that you... Uh, first, I should ask, when, when you're talking about uh, thermal ablation, are you using microwave, RFA? Yeah, I'm using microwave. Okay. And then the patients that you're that you then have on the table. So you basically have your catheter in a position to treat. Like, yeah. So we, you know, I, I start off by just going in and doing a hepatic artery, uh, angiogram and combing CT, usually with the five French catheter. Mm-hmm. And then once we've identify the tumor uh, using Combium CT, I just used the guidance software, the needle guidance software to position my needle and burn the tumor. And it's, I found that it's actually faster than getting multiple CTs or CT fluoro to try to isolate the lesion. You know, you, you just draw a line between the skin and the tumor and you just follow that trajectory and it's very easy to use. Again, anecdotally, I've seen a really great uh, a treatment response to, to uh, ablating that way. And so talking a little bit about your, uh, your chemo immobilization, you'd mentioned earlier that you're using some uh, pressure-directed uh, microcatheters. Yeah, so I, I, used, um, uh, I used the pressure-driven catheters for most of my chemo immobilizations. Um, so when I first started, you know, again, you know, this was driven from my frustrations with getting subpar um, responses to chemo immobilization. And when you, when you go back and kind of look at the different things that we've tried to improve our patient outcomes after chemoization, you know, using different size beads, using different chemos, whatever, uh, nothing really seems to have made a huge difference. And uh, I was introduced to the Surefire catheter. Uh, I started using that. And I remember my first patient, this guy had, uh, it was like a 70-some-year-old guy with five tumors that I treated once before with uh, partial response, you know, stable disease uh, for some lesions, partial response to others. I just did low bar taste on him using a, sh- a Surefire catheter. And uh, his uh, post-treatment follow-up, he had complete response to every single lesion. And I just could not believe that. I had never seen that before in a previously treated patient getting a complete response in a low bar fashion, mind you. Sure. Uh, so I started reading up a little bit more about it. And, um, you know, the, the animal study that uh, Harvin did early on showing kind of deeper penetration of particles in a pig kidney really made sense to me. You know, I thought that the, that the, the deficiency in, in my technique was the inability to get complete stasis into the, into the blood, um, uh, into the artery that's feeding the tumor. So, you know, that's kind of what drove me to start using the Surefire catheter. And we've, you know, we've done a retrospective study. We've now finished a perspective study that suggests that, you know, we are getting pretty robust uh, responses with this type of catheter for chemo 
So a lot of times when I'm, I'm reading up on the, um, uh, the pressure, uh, directed catheters, there's a lot of discussion about the tumor microenvironment. Is, is that something that you think about is, is, I mean, you kind of alluded to it a little bit with the animal model, but is the tumor microenvironment something like you think about on a regular basis whenever you're uh, treating um, HCC? Yeah, you know, so you're trying to overcome the elevated intratumoral pressure uh, when you're driving the particles. It's not, you know, I think that concept is uh, part of the reason why I use these catheters fairly often. And when you look at the when you look at the path studies uh, for Y ninety or or chemobilization, you know it makes sense when you when you look at the actual particle distribution. Most of the particles, most of the embolics that you inject, are going to end up in the periphery of the tumor and not really penetrate deeper in. Uh, and that may be due to necrosis, but uh, it's probably also due to the elevated intratumoral pressure that you're seeing. So uh, anything that you could use to overcome that uh, intratumoral interstitial pressure, I think, can help uh, in getting uh, good responses to to your treatment. So whenever you have your patient on the table for um uh, chemoembolization is your endpoint. What exactly is your endpoint whenever you're delivering the chemoembolic? So when I do chemoembolization using the surefire catheter, I mean I try to go to complete stasis. Complete I think stasis. the I think the embolic portion of chemoembolization is the more important part. So I try to go to complete stasis. So when I use the surefire catheter, you know the the endpoints are when I start to see intra uh, hepatic shunting. So if you're developing intrahepatic collaterals, arterial collaterals, mm-hmm. if you see reflux of contrast despite being being a tip up, those are kind of my endpoints uh, using these catheters. What's your uh, chemoembolization uh, mixture these days? So I'm pretty much a uh, you know a drug eluting embolic user. I do um, a small beads, fifty of uh, docs, and I'll just use one vial of the, uh, the drug eluting bead for treatment. And then if I need to get more embolic, then I'll then I'll use a bland uh, embolic for follow up. You know, I don't really change the dose of doxorubicin based on tumor size or the, the region that I treat. Uh, I just uh, just kind of keep it constant 50. Okay. So one vial of Debs then followed by Blandenbo with like one to three hundreds? Yeah, usually, you know, 100 and then 250s or you know, one to threes. Or- okay. Talking about, so, so moving from the actual case to the follow-up of these patients, what is, how do you see these patients afterwards, in, both in terms of uh, clinic visits and then in terms of imaging? Yeah, so we usually get a one-month follow-up imaging, um, you know, usually MR. Uh, if patients have residual disease, then we'll get them back into clinic, uh, go over their imaging, and, and um and then, you know, reschedule them for treatment. If patients have a complete response, we'll just call them and let them know that they're 
imaging looks great. And then I normally get a two month follow up after that. And then if it's a complete response at that time, we'll do every three month follow up uh, from that point. Just in terms of follow up, one of the one of the interesting things that I uh, that I noticed uh, on this. Um, uh, multi-center consortium paper was that, you know, even though only 23% of patients achieved complete response, 60% only had one local regional therapy, which, you know, suggests that we're not probably following up on uh, as aggressively for a lot of these patients as we should. So I think it's uh, for uh, at our institution and in my practice, you know, we order to follow up imaging. We follow it up. If the patient requires retreatment, we bring them back, um, and that's uh, you know, I think that's the best way to to treat these patients to make sure that you know patients are being retreated appropriately in an uh, expeditious fashion if they if it's needed. Sure. Those numbers are, are probably a little bit closer. I think even the paper admitted that the 23 complete pathologic response didn't account for tumors that were either being monitored or found during explant that, you know, had never undergone a treatment. But certainly there's room to make up between, you know, single treatment and leaving residual disease. So with the patients that you have residual disease... Like what? So, what does it look like? I, I guess what what is the endpoint if you continue to treat and you continue to not achieve a complete pathologic response? Like, do you do you like as soon as the patient gets brought back for a second treatment, you rinse and repeat, try something, or, and assuming you're you maybe even trying different local regional therapies, like how does it like kind of take me through a process where you're you continue to treat either be the same treatment or different treatments, but you're not achieving complete pathologic response. Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, what you know, what what we'll try to do is we'll go back and treat in a different modality. So you know, I'll give it a couple of treatments. So you know, if I'm starting off with chemobilization, you know, do a couple of treatments. If patients uh, come back after two or three treatments with residual disease, then you start thinking about what other modalities may be, may be available to um, try to completely treat this lesion. You know, is it a limitation based on technique or the location of the tumor? You know, what is it? So if you've, if I've done, uh, and this, this is a subset of patients that I may go back in and treat with radioembolization. Uh, sometimes I'll send these patients, depending on the location of the tumor, to the radiation oncologist for, um, for external uh, radiation treatment. If, uh, if the lesion is amenable for ablation, then I'll try that. So we try to think of other, other ways of treating. But that, that concept of, you know, how do you define local regional treatment failure is an important one, not as much for uh, the bridging to transplant population, but for people who are beyond that. Now with the, uh, with the data supporting uh, the use of uh, different immunotherapy combinations for treatment of advanced stage disease, you know, we have this question of, well, when do we call it quits? on the intermediate stage patients, if you've treated patients with two, three chemobilizations, is that, you know, do we define that as treatment failure? Do we define treatment failure only when we see disease progression on imaging? And it's, and, you know, there's, we don't really have an answer for that. I think that that's a question that we need to better define. I think one of the things that we struggle with is, 
you go in to chemo mobilization, you get a partial response, go back in, retreat, you get further response, you treat third time, you get further response. So in our mind, that is not a treatment failure. We're getting successive responses with more therapies. But on the flip side, if you kind of take a step back and you say, well, this guy's gotten three local regional treatments and they still have residual disease, you know, is it time to try something new? I think that's kind of the thought uh, that some of the oncologists have. So that's, you know, that's an important question that we um, as interventional radiologists need to address. Have you noticed um, it's getting a little bit outside of topic because we're talking about HCC who aren't getting bridged to transplant. Uh, more oncologists are treating with uh, immunotherapy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's um, a recent study that came out. It's called the Embrave 150, uh, where they looked at uh, a PDL1 inhibitor plus uh, bevacizumab. Uh, it was a it was a, a multicenter RCT comparing that to serafinib in the frontline setting for advanced stage HCC patients. And they're demonstrated superior survival uh, with uh, with the tezobev. So the standard of care for advanced stage patients is going to change. Um, the question now is, you know, is that combination regimen uh, going to be uh, superior to chemobilization for the intermediate stage patients, or if you combine it with chemobilization, will you have superior outcomes versus chemobilization alone? So those are some of the paradigm changes that we're seeing right now. So one of the things that, that may not be apparent to our audience, or, or it might be with some of the papers that we've talked about, is when when I was in fellowship, there was a really strong emphasis, specifically from you, about research and you know keeping up with the literature within the things that we're gonna you're gonna be working within. Um, if you could, if you had to give us some advice to um, younger interventional radiologists, either uh, trainees or people who are first out. When it comes to HCC, are there any papers that you consider critical reading or is there so much? I guess like I was I was looking to you if you could give some advice on uh, people and how to keep up the literature and what do you consider, you know, just absolutely, uh, you know, mission critical papers, you know, if you're going to embark on treating HCC. You know, that's that's a question that I get all the time from residents and fellows, even even junior attending. And the way that I think about it is, you know, data is armamentarium. When you go into tumor board and you're making a case for your treatment, you have to have armamentarium that you could present. And you say, well, why, you know, why do you think this patient should be treated with radiomobilization or ablation? And you have to base it on literature. If you just say, well, you know, it's what I think would benefit the patient, that that may work, but it's not as effective as presenting data. And that's, you know, that's what I try to stress to all my trainees. A lot, I, I found that a lot of people just don't know where to start. Um, in terms of uh, HCC or any other tumor types, I think the best way to start is to go to the NCCN site, get yourself an account, and look at the guidelines for that tumor type. There's an algorithm for primary cancers, primary liver cancers in the NCCN site. And go and read that. It's a little bit of a dense read, but you can read through that. What's important to note is, you know, what are the papers that they cite to create these treatment algorithms? And then you go and read that. So, you know, what is the basis for recommendation of chemo for intermediate stage HCC patients? You know, those are kind of 
basic things I feel like most interventional radiologists who treat HCC should know. So if you start off with a very broad, wide-ranging paper guideline like the NCCN guidelines, that'll point you in the in the right sources to read. So, you know, the Love It and Low papers from the early 2000s, that, you know, those papers are cited in that guidelines. So, you know, you can do this for every tumor type. You know, if you're interested in looking at, uh, you know, why is Y90 not the standard of care for colorectal metastases, you know, go to the FCN guidelines and read through their guidelines, look at the studies that they cite. And I think it's important, you know, when you go into tumor board, and the reason that I stress this so much is when you go into tumor board, you're not only expected to know IR data, you should really be familiar with data from radiation oncology, from surgery, from medical oncology. So you have some understanding of what they're talking about and what that level of data is. If, you know, if you're arguing for ablation for colorectal mets over external beam radiation, you know, what are you going to cite? Why are you recommending that? So it's important to, it's important to know that data. Uh, and, you know, using a source like NCN is a really good way to start and then follow that up by reading uh, their citations. Okay. If you want to really keep up you know, there are different things that you could do. You know, I'll just randomly search, you know, different terms on PubMed every once in a while and see what new publications have come out. There are, you know, are tools that you could use on PubMed to um, uh, have them send you journal articles on a regular basis. So you could, you know, you could do stuff like that as well. Okay. And actually, you know, for our listeners, um, as always, we'll link to uh, the NCCN site and the Love It and Low paper, and anything else we mentioned in the podcast, we'll link to all this stuff in the show notes so you guys can go back and follow it up. And then also pick Alex's brain offline and see if there's anything else we can link to. So in, in terms of, of research, I remember coming through fellowship and we, we really talked a lot about research and how that should drive your clinical practice. Have you softened up at all on... I mean, because it seems like you're doing now an ablation chemoembolization combination that maybe is less described in the literature. And like, is there ever a point where, you know, research meets experience and you have to marry those two to, to do what you think is best? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think that comes with um, just being more comfortable in your practice. You know, you try to treat patients based on existing guidelines as much as possible. You know, if you have new evidence that comes in. So again, you know, early in my career, the concept of getting complete pathological response that may, you know, potentially extend patients' lives after uh, liver transplantation wasn't really there. So, you know, when you, when you look at papers like that, when you see data that suggests that, you know, you look at your own practice and say, am I really doing the things that I need to achieve that for my patients. And I think that's how my practice evolved. Yeah. I mean, doing an angioblation same day, you know, same session, taste ablate, you know, there's been a couple of uh, papers on, but it's not standard practice by any means, but that concept of doing chemobilization followed by ablation or vice versa has been there for a long time. So, you know, I think it's exactly what you said, Chris. You're trying to use the existing literature. 
use the knowledge, the clinical knowledge that you've gained through your years of practice and try to marry that and try, you know, so that you get the best outcomes for your patients. And I, you know, I expect hopefully my practice will continue to evolve over time uh, as, as new data comes in and I, as I uh, gain more experience in, in treating more patients. One of the last questions uh, that I have for you, Alex, is, is keeping with, with where you see your practice in, in, in a transplant center, is there anything that you see in terms of like early literature or um, practice patterns that like where do you see HCC? Uh, treatments going in the next like five years, I, you know, impossible to predict and the tea leaves aren't clear, but is there anything that you see on the horizon that's exciting for you? Yeah. So, you know, everybody in, in oncology is very excited about immunotherapy, right? And, you know, there are a lot of interventional radiologists doing research looking at uh, how uh, our treatments can fit in with immunotherapy uh, treatments. So how do you marry the two? And that's, you know, I think that's really going to revolutionize, um, hopefully for the positive, our practice in the future. There's some early studies that have looked at combining ablation with, um, different checkpoint inhibitors. You know, we, uh, there should be more that are coming out. We have a couple of different studies at Georgetown that we're starting, one with, uh, Y90 plus, uh, immunotherapy combination, another one with IRE plus, uh, immunotherapy, uh, for HCC patients to see if either of those treatment combinations can lead to better outcomes. So I think a lot, a lot of the practice changing data is going to be hopefully be in combining what we do with the, the newer immunotherapy agents that are going to come out in the future. All right. Excellent. All right, guys, I think that wraps things up today um, to the audience. Thank you guys for listening. We covered an important, uh, pretty robust topic today. If you guys enjoyed the podcast and want to support the show here, are just two easy ways. First, take one second and press the subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening on. This helps um, things like iTunes and Spotify know that you, our audience, value what we're doing and you're getting uh, our latest content as we're producing it. Second, if you guys really are getting value from these podcasts, please go to iTunes, leave us a short written review. This helps us in a lot of different ways. We love the feedback. Also, a special shout out to Tyler Sandow and Daryl Goldman. When I was prepping for our last podcast about the HCC consortium paper, you guys had uh, great lectures on the uh, digital video library from SIR that helped me get ready for that talk. And um, I just recognized both of you guys from uh, Twitter and great job on both of your talks. Uh, guys, that about wraps things up. Uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks again, Alex. Thanks, Chris.